lot of talk about relationships. I'm going to stand on my tippy toes. Um, well, I don't know. There's something I like about this history. Um, we're going to talk about relationship, which is just another word for abiding. You know, we were born for relationship, right? Um, the God that we worship is actually three persons. And he has loved himself or each other um, for all eternity before we ever came around. So the, so the most basic thing you can say about the universe is that there is relationship. And God just wanted us to be, he wanted to take us into it and to envelop more people into what he already had. And so here we are. Um, and... If you got married and your husband and you had the ceremony and then afterwards he just took off and said, well, you're on your own, um, that wouldn't be very helpful. Um, you would have been officially made his wife, but um, there's supposed to be more to it after that. And the same with um, us becoming a Christian. Christ is our Savior. And then he wants to be our Lord. So I think maybe that's a handy way of looking at this thing about, you know, pressing into abiding. You know, that abiding isn't, in a sense, only conversion, but it's, it's what happens after conversion, too. I wonder if anybody can think of any songs that are not about relationship. Let's just shout out. What? <laughs> yes, let's brainstorm songs that are not about relationship. I don't care, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, what? Bikini, there you go. Okay, all right. Yes, great, all right. What? <laughs> okay, but I guess um, it's evident that we're not breaking any records with naming songs here because, as a matter of fact, most songs are about relationship, and I don't think that's an accident, right? We're like hardwired for relationship. Um, But the thing is, we can't see God. So that makes it a little bit challenging. But the Lord knows that, and so he's given us ways to press into relationship with him. What would you think are some of the ways that we can be in relationship with God? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. Romans chapter 1, he speaks to us. It says uh, we know his deity and power by what he... Yeah, he even in the rainbow, he said every time you see the rainbow, I want you to remember, you know, something. So, right. But notably what I was thinking of was we have his word, 
right? We have prayer, and also we have His Holy Spirit living inside of us, to the point where in First John it says you don't really need any teachers to teach you. It's good to have them, but you have you you have His anointing in you, so that you know you don't need anyone. You have prayer in the Word, and if you were on a desert island alone, you'd be fine with the Holy Spirit in you. Um, and if you, if you don't think the Holy Spirit speaks to you, then how about the time that you felt like, don't tell that joke, right? <laughs> or what you're about to say is gossip. Yeah. Um, there was a guy named Evan Roberts who was a key figure in the Welsh revival of 1906. He prayed for revival from the time he was a young teenager. And then he went away to school in Newcastle and he heard that way across town, in the other part of Wales rather, a revival broke out and he was just so happy. And then it went like wildfire. And the Welsh revival, which by the way started in the little church when at a youth group a 14-year-old girl named Flory Evans gave her testimony about how she loved Jesus. And it just, it was like, you know, flashpoint and fire. It just went over, it was Korea, uh, Australia, it just, uh, 1906 was a very big year. But, um, you know, it was birthed in prayer. And there, were, there have been people down through history who have known that you've got to stick to it. And, you know, not just pray and then give up after a while when you don't feel like it. There's a guy named G. Edwin, J. Edwin Orr who devoted his life to studying revivals. And he found out that there's no revival he ever heard of that wasn't birthed in a concert of prayer, that wasn't preceded by people getting together and just devoting themselves to praying for the long haul. And I don't know why the Lord doesn't send it immediately. You know, he knows we're frail, but somehow or other, he's pleased when we keep at it. You know, that's why he said he gave us that parable about the persistent widow and... um, there was a guy in, nine, in 1858 in New York named Jeremiah Lamphere, and he decided to pray on his lunch break in New York City. He, was, he worked in Manhattan, and he uh, rented a little place. I think he rented a place, and he went there, and he prayed, and he invited a few people to come. The first prayer meeting, nobody came. Later, about six or seven people came, and... After a while, there were so many people praying in New York City that it's one of the great revivals that we've had in this country, 1858, to the point where the New York Times wrote about it. It said, you know, at lunchtime in in, in Manhattan, every available church and hall is filled with businessmen. It was specifically a businessman's revival. If you don't mind, I'd like to read you another inmate letter. This one is about listening to the Holy Spirit. This guy's a good writer. Um, He writes, there are lots of rules we have to follow here in prison. Some of them are invented by the Bureau of Prisons specifically so they can enforce them. Some are invented on the spot by guards because they're guards and they can do that. And a few are invented for legitimate reasons. Don't climb over that fence, for example. For the overwhelming majority of, inmate, majority of inmates, the sole motivator for following these rules is not surprisingly fear of consequences. Uh, God spoke to me clearly in this matter. If I'm to maintain a consistent walk with him, 
There is no place in my life for breaking rules. When you live like sardines 24-7, your life is pretty much an open book. I promised God I would follow all the rules, except one banana pudding purchased a month from Perry for three stamps. I like banana pudding. <laughs> stamps of currency in prison. The transformer is okay, too. You see, my celly Pablo doesn't like overhead lights, so he's always turning them off, and that makes it hard to read. So I could always have a reading light installed. For four books of stamps, someone will steal one from the electrical shop and wire it in for me. But I can't do that because it's breaking the rules. Instead, I bought a reading light from the commissary. The only problem with this battery-operated light is that it runs on batteries. The more I use the light, the more batteries I have to buy. Duh. I carefully analyzed the problem and boiled it down to three possibilities. One, get rid of Pablo. <laughs> Two, buy lots and lots of batteries. Three, run the light with a transformer from the outlet conveniently placed by my bedside. Now you might wonder how a person could acquire a transformer with just the right plug and voltage in a federal prison. No problem, just find the right person and bring stamps. So now I own a transformer. Pablo, on the other hand, has wires sticking out of his outlet in all directions. I used my transformer for an entire year, each morning carefully stuffing, stuffing it into a Lipton tea bag box with the cellophane retaped to make it look unopened. One day I was walking and praying on the track, which I do frequently. They go out on yard and walk around in circles. And God began, to be, to, God began speaking to me to get rid of the transformer. It doesn't honor me, he said. I immediately protested, but Lord, I needed to read. And Lord, I read Christian, Christian books with it. Then it hit me. I'll do a frontal assault with the B word. Lord, I read my Bible with it. B-I-B-L-E. I didn't feel as though I was getting my point across. Lord, without the transformer, I couldn't grow spiritually. Just what do you expect me to replace it with? Have you ever tried arguing with God? Aside from the absurdity of the exercise, man questioning his maker and all that, there is a profound truth. You can't win. He responded to me with overwhelming simplicity. It takes double A's. Now, while this wasn't exactly a burning bush type of revelation, you would think the point had been driven home. Not yet. I still had an ace in the hole. I'll pray about it, Lord. <laughs> I returned to my room only to find all of Pablo's wires and electronics gone, the casualty of another shakedown. I hurried to my locker. Thankfully, my precious contraband was safe and secure in its cellophane-covered teabag box. Later that day, Pablo and I were paged to the lieutenant's office. Um, nine times out of ten, this is the last stop before being taken to the hole, the solitary. The lieutenant showed us the photo taken of Pablo's wiring and informed us that we were equally responsible for everything in that room. He chewed on us for 15 minutes, and as he did, every word of my morning conversation with the Lord came back to me. What he had spoken to me, what I had responded, everything. The lieutenant concluded his diatribe by saying, I ought to throw you both in the hole, and if I ever see a single piece of electronic contraband from in your room again, I will. Pablo and I returned in silence. I just knew that were I to keep the transformer, it would be quickly discovered. I also realized that God's dealing with me was a repeat on a smaller scale of what had landed me in prison in the first place. So the transformer went into the trash and with it a little piece of defiance. Smaller certainly than what got me sent here, but displeasing in his sight nevertheless. He spoke to me again, no condemnation, just this. 
my son, this isn't my path for you. Thank you, Lord, for being my transformer. My nerves are totally shot. I need something to soothe them. Hey, Perry, you making pudding tonight? So anyway, if God has given us these ways to press into abiding with him, I wonder why we don't do it more, you know? I mean, I wonder why we seem to reach a certain level, like when you first got saved there was an excitement, and then you seemed to plateau maybe, or just kind of tread water till the end, not really expecting much more from God. Um, So I thought about that. I know... It wasn't always that way. In the early church, I learned today, two, 2.42. You had a good 2.42? Yes, I looked it up. And the apostles devoted themselves to prayer, the word, and fellowship. Devoted themselves to it. And, so, and, and they had a lot of power. They experienced a lot of power. And, you know, I, I, you know with the magic of the Internet, I see what's going on in other countries. In Africa, things are exploding. In India and Iran... And I hear from the missionary people I know that people are totally devoted to prayer. And I was wondering, why don't we press in more? And here's the reasons I came up with and maybe what we can do about that. One is, I think we just simply don't believe God. I'll give you one example. I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone Actually, he was an ex-con. And I was whining to him about something. I don't remember what. And he listened for a while. And then he said, Andre, you got a Bible? And I said, yeah. And he said, go get it. I got it. And he said, uh, turn to Philippians 4.13. And I said, yeah. He said, you got some white out? And I said, <laughs> you know that verse, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I said, yeah, starting to catch his drift. He said, why don't you white it out? You're not using it anyway. (laughs) Another time, I said one example, but there was more. Same guy on the phone. He had told me for depression, which, I don't know, you might pick up as a theme in my life. He said, Isaiah 61, verse 3. Put on a spirit of praise, a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Um, So, then... A few weeks later, we talked again, and he said, uh, so how are you doing with Isaiah 61.3? And I said, oh, it's beautiful, you know, verse. And he said, never mind, beautiful, are you doing it? You know? Are you praising God when you feel depression? Um, I know a man, he's a pastor, and his marriage fell apart. He was in his late 70s. And his wife inexplicably wanted to split. And he was devastated, but she, they sold the house, and he gave her her half, and he moved to Florida, moved in with his daughter. And the, the divorce wasn't final by any means. She was just getting a lawyer. And he was reading the Bible, and he read Hosea, and he thought to himself, wow, God pursued Israel. You know, maybe... I should pursue my wife. So he got on the phone and he called her, and they're back together again. It's been about a year, I guess. And that was just from extrapolating from the Word of God, you know, in the Old Testament even, and believing that it spoke to him, that it had something to say about his marriage. 
Um, I met a woman in Ocean City, Maryland, and her husband left her, and at the same time her son was in a car accident, in a uh, teenage son, um, and about the same time. And she was understandably distraught. She went to her pastor, and she said that he didn't really have much to say that would comfort her. So she went to God, and she said, your word says you're a counselor. Counsel me. And she just read his word, and she said that she was greatly comforted. Um, same with a, a woman, last name Broderick, I can't remember, Patricia, I think. She wrote a book called He Said Press, and it's about her husband who died in an airplane crash and uh, the aftermath of that. He was 32, plane crashed over the Adriatic. Um, a lot of people tried to comfort her and, and did, you know, a good job, but she said, you know, some people just gave her permission to be angry about this. You know, say, God would understand it if you're angry. But she just went to the Bible and she made up her mind that there must be something in here to comfort me. And so she went straight through, uh, you know, short-circuited those supposedly eight stages of grief or whatever that the psychologists say you all have to go through. We don't have to go through all the things they tell us we have to go through because the Word of God is above the Word of man, you know. Second reason I think we don't press much into abiding in God, and this is related to the first, I find that there are a lot of Christians who really don't like God very much. I mean, I mean they believe that uh, they believe the gospel and that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. But when it comes right down to it on a daily basis, they don't really trust him for the day-to-day stuff. Um, And the problem with that is that, you know, your faith in God will never be higher than your perception of how trustworthy he is. I met a woman once, I'll call Maggie, and she was at a retreat where a bunch of women were talking on the topic of suffering. And there were all kinds of horror stories that came out. But Maggie raised her hand. She was a young, pretty mother of three children. And she said, this is the best time of my life. Um, I have a husband who loves me, three healthy children. And she said, I can't enjoy it because I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know? (laughs) I mean, we have such a problem that we not only have a problem with bad days, we have a problem with good days. You know, it's what we talked about earlier about always having to worry about something. It's almost like an addiction to worry, right? To you know, to the point that if you don't remember what it is you're worrying about, you try to remember what is it I'm worried about now, so, this, so that I can worry about it properly. You know, so I can, you know, so I can really get into it. You know, because you know, you must, you must be worried about something. You know, the Bible says that we're to have joy. It's one of the fruit of the spirit. And if a tree is healthy, the fruit should be normal, right? If, you, if we're not having joy, then that's not the normal state of a Christian, according to the Bible. Um, not according to normal, defined in statistical terms, maybe, but according to the Bible. But I noticed when, yeah, I was wondering, well, why don't I have more joy? You know, why doesn't God give me joy if, if he says it's through the Spirit? And then I noticed it wasn't that God wasn't giving me joy. It was he was trying to give it to me, and I was suppressing it. Because it's not safe to give yourself over to joy, you know. 
you want to uh, stay down on this level because it's less far to fall if anything bad happens tomorrow, you know. Examples of why you might not like God or trust him on a day-to-day basis. I just thought of a couple before I came here. Suppose you have your dream job uh, opportunity, but it comes with a little integrity test. You would have to spend a lot of time away from your family, and you have a check in your conscience about that. Okay, So you're mad about God, uh, God for that. Right? Can't take that job. Uh, you fall head over heels in love with the best man in the world, but he's not a believer. Um, you've always wanted a child and you know you would be a wonderful mother but the Lord hasn't given you a child it's very interesting to me that God never apologizes for any of this you know which makes the plot really thicken for me it means that there's a lot more going on behind the curtain than we know because we know that God is a loving and merciful God um And sometimes I wonder if the angels are sort of biting their fingernails watching us because the angels do watch us. Ephesians 3.10 tells us that. And 1 Corinthians 11.10 tells us that. That the angels watch what we do. And they probably, I don't know, maybe they know a little bit more than we do and they must be rooting for us to, uh, to hang in there with God when we're perplexed. Remember, Paul said in one of his letters, and I think, Corinthians, Second Corinthians, he said, we are perplexed but not in despair. But, you know, that perplexed, you've you got to think about that one for a while. Don't brush over too lightly because perplexity can be pretty darn close to despair with the dividing line being that you make it a decision. You choose to hang in there with Christ. Um, rather than apologizing to us, God just offers his hand and says, I'll take your hand through this. I know you can't see around corners. But, you know, even this weekend, I met three people, and I probably, I didn't ask them permission, so I won't mention them, but who had hard things happen to them and couldn't have seen when they were going through it um, a blessing that would come from that hard thing. So we never really can see the end of things. My kids had a book once from the library, that maybe your kids have read called That's Good, That's Bad. You know that one? And it's kind of fun because um, you have on one page something good happens to somebody and and then uh, there's a sort of refrain at the bottom of the page that says, oh, that's good. And then it says, no, that's bad. Because after, you know, he went on his trip, then he fell off the boat into the ocean. And then you read, you read oh, that's bad. And then the book says, no, that's good. Because after he fell into the ocean, you know, a kind whale came along and scooped him up. And, and he said, oh, that's good. Uh, no, that's bad. Because actually that whale got hungry. And, then, you know, it just keeps going and going and going. And so it's kind of playing with you because it's making you think that, you know, things are a certain way. But then you turn the page and they change. And that's how your life is. You know, bad things happen or, or good things happen. Uh, to seem to happen to people who hate the Lord, but you wouldn't want to be in their shoes at the end, you know, because they're putting their money in a bag with holes in it. You know? um, Anne Lamott tells a story about uh, uh, the, the writer I told you about. A friend of hers in Lake Tahoe went on vacation with her two-year-old, and uh, 
she was a writer also, and she was in one room typing away, and so she closed the door and put her two-year-old to bed, and uh, the two-year-old somehow climbed out of the crib and somehow locked the door of the room, and uh, so the mother couldn't get in and um, didn't know where the key was or anything, and the baby couldn't get out, and uh, so the baby, when she or he figured out, let's say she was in a locked room, freaked out and started crying. And so the mother was running around trying all kinds of things, including keys she knew weren't the right key, just, you know, frantic. And finally, you know, made a call to the uh, landlord or whatever. But in the meantime, had to deal with this hysterical baby. And she decided she would just slip her fingers under the door because there was enough room. And she told her baby, touch mommy's fingers, you know. And so the baby found the mother's fingers and just held on until somebody came. And um, that's how it is with God, you know. I mean, we don't see him, but he holds our hand through it, you know. She ends that story by saying, it isn't enough, it isn't enough, and it is. Or something like that. <laughs> I forget. But um, you get the idea. Here's a third thing. Third reason why I think we tend to not press into abiding more. Um, we have a, base, a faith that tends to be based on circumstances. Um, and so when things are going well or you prayed for something and it happened, you're all excited, then you pray for something and it didn't happen and you get plunged into doubt. And it's sort of a he loves me, he loves me not kind of relationship with Christ. And so it it doesn't advance very much because you're never really fully committed to him. I got a letter from a friend of mine who's a missionary in um, South Sudan, and she's living with a woman who she says has a faith that's not based on circumstances. And I started thinking about how wonderful that must be. This woman's been through terrible things in South Sudan. She was in a town... Um, that was totally bombed and burned and razed to the ground. And they had prayed, and it was to the point that even the knives were burned, you know. But not a person died in that town somehow or other, you know. So the town was... So the woman, that was a year ago, and my friend Larissa wrote, and she said the woman's having a memorial service today, uh, these days, to, to remember and to thank God for his protection. But I, I like the idea of a faith that's not based on circumstances, and I know some people like that, and it's a totally different way of living. You know, to not have this up again, down again thing, but to just commit yourself to trusting God no matter how things look at the moment. You know, Joseph, right? That's another that's good, that's bad story, right? Joseph, well, you know, he gets, he's the favorite of the father. That's good. No, the brothers hate him. Ooh, that's bad. They sold him into slavery. That's bad. No, that's good because he ended up in Potiphar's house and he got a great job. That's great. No, because Potiphar's wife had designs on him and then he ended up back in jail. Ooh, that's bad. It's good because he met two guys who had dreams and they, um, and you know, one of them he interpreted the dream and he told Joseph, yeah, I'll tell the Pharaoh for you what you did, you know. And so that's good, right? Well, no, it's bad because he forgot to tell the Pharaoh but then so that's bad but then two years later the Pharaoh has uh, nightmares and the guy I remember this guy named Joseph he can interpret dreams so you know and it keeps going on and your life is like that too 
right? But Joseph, we have no evidence that he ever wavered. Um, I mean, we don't know everything about him, but he's greatly commended by God. And so my impression is that he had a prophecy spoken over him when he was a kid, and he remembered it, you know? I think it's good now and then when we doubt God's love to just remember what the different members, the three members of the Trinity have done for us. Uh, God the Father gave his only son and we tend to think not too much about it so we don't realize how hard it was. But, you know, there is that little verse in Genesis where he tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, and bring him to the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And so here we have a few thousand years before the time uh, God sort of longingly pausing over those words, your only son, as if he's already preparing for his own broken heart over his only son. Jesus left the company of angels being worshipped and waited on hand and foot. You know, he got... He got ministered to by angels in the desert when he was tempted, but he had that all the time in heaven. And he came down here to be spit on, you know. And the Holy Spirit left the glories of heaven to move into your life, into your heart, which five minutes after salvation wasn't very pretty, probably, right? So, I don't know, can we trust and trust ourselves to a love like that and just trust God for the rest since he's done all of that for us. And if we believe in God's love for us, it will change everything. It will change the way we relate to other people because you'll be like that person who, who's described in the Gospels as finding hidden treasure. You know, he's got money in the bank now. Nobody knows what he found, but he goes down you know, to the bar room next day like usual and he buys drinks all around. You know, hey, what's getting into Joe? You know? And, you know... But he's happy as a clan because he's got money in the bank. And in a sense, to put it crassly, we have money in the bank. We have God's love. So we can, be, we can afford to be generous with our forgiveness and generous with our affection because we have God's forgiveness and his affection. Um, here are a few of the things I wrote down that we can do if we believe in God's love for us. A few ways that it will change our relationships. We can go first in loving someone instead of waiting for them to go first. We can forgive and receive forgiveness. We can be free from being controlled by fear of other people or their opinions of us. Um, We don't have to be destroyed by other people. We'll still be hurt by them, but we don't have to be destroyed by them. And we can have a lot of hope for other people. Uh, because we because we believe that all things are possible for Christ. And so we believe it not only for ourselves, but for the people that are bothering us right now. Uh, so we don't ever have to say it's too late for this person or it's too late for that marriage or anything like that. Um, and we can travel through life without extra baggage, without baggage of regret and guilt, that we sometimes allow to nibble away at us um, all day long. Here's my last reason why I think we don't tend to press more deeply into abiding. 
I think that we have um, a confusion in the church about grace um, and about the word and about obedience. Uh, Satan's misinformation campaign, I would say. Uh, because we know that we're saved by grace and not by our works, that has been twisted, I think, into meaning that um, we shouldn't try to do anything. So we confuse effort with earnings. And we shouldn't. You know, this kind of confusion in my life induced paralysis. You know, because I wasn't sure if it was right to, um, um, you know, to press into you know, to try to read the Bible more or to try to pray more. I was afraid maybe that's legalism or works righteousness or something. So I think we should pretty much forget all about that. You know, that um, it's, um, the Lord said to seek him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. There's no law against that. Yeah. So uh, God wants to transform us. He's interested in taking us from where we were five minutes after we got saved to transforming us into the likeness of Christ. You know, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that, transformed by degrees into his likeness. And if, if someone's going to transform someone, there's two different ways you could go about it. One, we'll call the elevator method. There's um, a story I heard about a hillbilly who blows into town First time in a big city, walks into a big building, sees, standing there with his son, and he sees these two big metal doors that just open by themselves. Right? And um, this older woman comes hobbling along and walks through those doors. Then the door is just magically closed behind her. She disappears. And then a few minutes later, the doors open again. And this beautiful, gorgeous woman walks out. And this hillbilly's standing there. And he leans over to his son and he says, Jid, go get your mother. (laughs) Okay, that would be the elevator method of transformation, which God evidently is not interested in. He wants the method that's not automatic, but that we're involved with. And that we're conscious all the way through. And because he favors that method, sometimes it's going to be painful. Uh, because he's going to put you into situations where you're going to be forced to trust him. And when, where you have nothing else to hold on to but the sheer, invisible, intangible word of God above everything you see. You know, um, He's going to put you in situations with co-workers that bring your issues to the surface. So that you felt like you would have been a perfect Christian if it weren't for that person. You know, you would have been totally sanctified if it weren't for that person. But God is just, you know, lovingly showing you some things that still need to be dealt with. So actually that person is a favor, you know, for your sanctification. Um, The commandments of God, and this is a kind of recent revelation to me. And it blew me away when I realized this, that the commandments of God are really doorways into deeper intimacy. So you don't want to wish them away. And when I say the commandments of God, I mean things like um, prayer, the word, loving people, 
um, forgiving people, and just as many commands as the Lord has given, you know. Since in those two verses we read yesterday, he said, he who keeps my word, he's the one I'll manifest myself to. Uh, the commandments of God serve about uh, at least two functions I could think of. One is that they're guardrails to keep you from going off the deep end. Uh, Tanya and I are reading a book about, about Jane Russell. Some of you remember her. Many of you think of her as a poster girl, but she also was a Christian, became a Christian, and she had an abortion when she was 19, and she um, ended up, she, it almost killed her. It was a back alley job, and it was a butcher of a job. She ended up at home, and her mother took care of her, and her mother was a devoted Christian. who used to have prayer meetings and Bible studies at her kitchen table. And she said to Jane, you know, Jane, the Lord's commands are for your good. They're guardrails for you. And if you crash through those guardrails, you're going to land in pieces. But if you give the pieces all back to God, he'll put you back together again. And Jane says in that chapter, she said, after that, no one, but no one could ever tell me that there wasn't a God with me, you know, watching over me. Um, so God has a very strange way of bringing us into deeper relationship with him uh, and it's his commands his commands to love, to trust, to give he, he wants to take you on the adventure of your life uh, you wanted a nice little cozy hobbit life, right? God wants to blow the doors off that. Um, and, you know, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, when God calls a man, he calls him to die, you know. But there's life on the other side of dying. And people who have been changed by obeying God's commands, don't ever wish that they could be, go back to being the way they used to be. I've never met anybody who said, oh, I wish I was still the way I was before God trained me. You know, I mean, they're not happy for, for the misery, but they're happy for the results. And no one ever wants to go back to being the way they used to be. Um, I'll read you one very short letter. This I got from Tim Keller. It's part of a letter that a man wrote about his, about his breakup with his fiancée. I guess this girl had probably ditched him. And he's talking about forgiving her and how he changed his life. He said, I forgave her, and it took me a whole year. And I had to forgive her in small sums over that whole 12 months. I paid those sums whenever I spoke to her and kept myself from rehashing the past. I paid them whenever I saw her with another man and refused self-pity and rehearsal inside for what she had done to me. I paid them whenever I praised her to others when I really wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, but she never knew them. However, I never knew her payments, but I know she made them, I could tell. Growth in Christ-likeness through obedience to God's commands. Um, there was a woman who was... Um, I'm going to end with this. There was a woman who was listening to the radio one day. She was in a very bad marriage. And Elizabeth Elliot came on the radio. And Elizabeth Elliot said, um, is your husband your enemy? And she was washing dishes, this lady. But she heard that. And so she 
leaned in because she thought, yeah, my husband is my enemy. Yeah, makes himself my enemy. So Elizabeth Elliot says, you know, this woman's waiting for some good advice. And Elizabeth Elliot says, well, what does the Bible say to do to our enemies? She thought, oh, no, come on. And, you know, you know the answer. So she said, this woman thought, no, I can't do that, you know. Uh, this marriage is like deader than dead. But even though she couldn't really love her husband, she figured she could try to do one nice thing a week for him. So she knew he liked Jewish apple cake, let's say. I forget what it was. So she made him an apple cake. And she noticed that he kind of liked it. And so the next week she did something else nice for him. And, you know, uh, she noticed that it pleased him. And after a while... You know, that sort of made her feel good, too. You know, said it pleased him, and he, I guess, said that it pleased him. And after a while of doing that, she felt sort of really crushed that how could she have been so hard-hearted to have withheld one nice thing a week from her husband, you know. But you can see that the commandments of God became in her life her deliverance. You know, we think of commands as, things to be dreaded, but the commandments of God are our pathways to intimacy and they become our deliverance. They set us free from, from being um, controlled by our desires and, and our issues and by the desires and issues of other people. The commands of God are good because Jesus is our master and he's a good master. So when you're commanded by a good master, it's good. You can only have one of two masters. Um, we just heard Bob Dylan was born in Minnesota. Bob Dylan wrote that song about you got to serve somebody, right? Well, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And uh, I know a woman who's a counselor, and she tells her counselees tell her, well, I would never do such and such, fill in the blanks. I would never divorce or I would never murder somebody. And Sue says to her, well, now you wouldn't. What? Well, but you're not the same person today that you will be a month from now because it all depends on the micro choices that we make between now and next month and the month after that. No one wakes up, you know, one day and becomes a serial killer, Uh, you know, I heard Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy give his testimony before he died, and he, and he said it was little choices that just drag you down, you know, one step at a time until you're doing things that a year earlier you couldn't, you would have sworn you never would have done. It's these little choices that no one even sees you make, that you can go to church and look totally normal, but you're, you're choosing things that either are making you resemble gradually more and more, uh, one master or the other master. You know, that's why in the Bible, in one of the letters, it talks about people who are, uh, who are haters of God are sort of bestial. They become controlled by instinct. Whereas uh, people who constantly make choices to abide in Christ and to obey him become to re- begin to resemble Christ more and more. But Stephen, his face was like an angel when they were stoning him to death. Okay, and that will be all for now. We'll just uh, pray.